Today's scripture reading can be found in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, page 837 of the Pew Bibles. Please stand for the reading of God's word if you're able. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he, and he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and they had made an opening. They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had, they had thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and take your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them. So all so, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is God's word. So in Massachusetts last year, 2008, there were 2,069 deaths related to the opioid crisis. Um, this crisis is just ongoing, but thankfully, there are people like Dave Lane, um, who is the executive director of Bridge House in Framingham, uh, a faith-based recovery home for men with substance abuse problems. We've worked with Dave for many, many years. I think we might have even been there at the founding of Bridge House, but we, we need Westgate. Um, and so it's with great pleasure. I'd like to introduce Dave to come on up, and uh, he's going to preach to us today um, from this verse and just kind of tell us what's going on. Thank you, Brian, and thank you for your faithful support. As he was sharing, you've been with us from the beginning. I believe it was George's dad that knew Jim Spence personally. Um, Jim Spence, the founder of the ministry, was an engineer working at Texas Instruments, and as he would drive back and forth to work, for whatever reason, he passed by Concord Prison. He was really, a burden was being birthed in his heart because he knew people needed to know the gospel there too. And so, quit his job and became a chaplain in the prison system. And then as he was a chaplain in the prison system, one of the things he noticed was that the same guys that were coming in were going out and then coming in and then going out. There was continual re-criminal behavior and come on back and this was going on. And he said, wait, we've got to do something about this. So he left the chaplaincy and created the Bridge House along with, I think it was like 30 churches and individuals that were at its inception to try to help men transition in Christian lifestyle. So their saying, which is still our saying today, is reconciliation to God and society. Many times when um, substance abuse or criminal behavior takes over our lives, we just have such a hard time breaking from that. Because there's issues that brought people to that point where they turn toward drugs. We all sort of know it in our own hearts. We may identify different things, but 
as I think Susanna Wesley said to her children about their need to keep their love for God, is a, is she said, anything that cools your love for Jesus Christ is an idol and is worldly. And I think we need to invest that in ourselves as well, to understand that. Bridge House was founded over 30 years ago, and we since then we've been helping men coming out of prison then in 1993 or four, we got a license. The only license we could get with was Bureau of Substance Abuse Services. Now it's called the Bureau of Substance Addiction Services in the state of Massachusetts. And we've been helping men ever since that. We are faith-based. There's Christian devotions that happen every day at the Bridge House. And then of course, we also have a Bible study and we've also had other Christian groups come in. Those are not mandatory. We're not allowed to make them mandatory. And quite frankly, as a Christian, it wouldn't work if we did make it mandatory. So we've seen many come to faith in Christ. Churches in our particular area have helped disciple some of these men to go on in their faith with Christ. And I'll share more stories with that as we as we move forward. Share one story to begin with before we look into the scriptures. Man, I will not reveal his name, but I'll just give by his initials, GD, was a lifer. That man, he was going to go to prison for the rest of his life without parole. After 35 years, it was decided that he would be paroled. He shared a story with us, and the thing that happened with GD is he's African-American, he hated white people, he's from Boston, and never had a good experience with white people, and just was full of hatred and bitterness, a life of crime. You can imagine the type of crime he probably committed because he was a lifer, felony one, you will spend the rest of the days of your life in prison. 35 years later, he's free, but his first month in prison, he was without hope. He thought to himself, there's nothing I can do. My life is ruined. I'm gonna be in this cell the rest of my life, and I don't want that. So he rolled up his bed sheet, hung it over a heating pipe that was going through the ceiling, wrapped it around his neck as he stood, he's a large man, and was about to jump off the metal toilet seat that was in his room. And then he remembered something like, something whispered in his ear. He remembered what his Sunday school teacher told him when he was a little boy about Jesus dying on the cross. And he started to weep and said, Jesus, I've made a mess of my life. Please, Lord, will you save me? Will you, will you change my heart? And God changed his heart and he was saved. The next 35 years he spent in prison. When he was being released, he knew he needed help. You do not spend 35 years in prison and all of a sudden come out and I'll get a job, I'll be, live the lifestyle, get the you know bar, barbecue in the backyard. It doesn't happen. And so he came at the bridge house and he was one of the shining examples of God's grace at the bridge house. Um, when I was a night supervisor, it's interesting, after 20 years of ministry as pastoring, I went into the bridge house as a night supervisor. I had a lot of shocking cultural, um, uh, I don't know, transcultural, even within the United States experiences. Because when you're a pastor, you may not realize it or not, but you're very insulated from the world. <laughs> I mean, you're dealing with problems, sure, and they're real life problems and stuff, but it's all with Christians. And there you are. Now, in my particular case, I sort of was inclined to this ministry because when I I, came, I was an atheist who came to faith in Christ literally on my 18th birthday in high school. And um, 
So I didn't really have any background of what does it mean to be Christian. I didn't know Christianese. I remember, I think a month after I was saved, I was in my sociology class and being in the Washington DC area, we have a lot of international students. This was a really cute Guatemalan girl. And I was, I, you know, I was just beginning sharing with her about how Jesus changed my life and it's just great. And man, and just the peace and the joy and the love. And she looked at me and she says, well, Dave, how do you become a Christian? And I thought, I don't know. <laughs> and as I did that, you laughed, and there was this group, this schoolmate of mine, his name was Charleston Gay, which he was a Baptist, born again Christian, and he laughed. And so I saw Charlie over there, and I said, Charlie, can you come over and tell her how do you become a Christian? It was just sort of something like that. And Sort of from that experience, and as we're going to weave into the text here, that's basically what evangelism is. It's telling people about who Jesus is, and well, I'm going to bring you to Jesus. So let's turn to our text. When he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home as Jesus. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he came, was preaching the word to them. And they came longing, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And can you get this scene? Jesus is coming to this person's home. And people heard about Jesus. They said, well, there's miracles, demons get, you know, cast out, and people get healed, and, and the teaching, ah. Boy, people come back and they say, man, my heart was just burning inside me. So much bore witness to the truth and the love of God. And I just know that this man is speaking the truth. I know some of the leaders don't particularly care for him. They warn us about him. Don't go hear him preach. You know, you don't know what's going to happen. So the place becomes crowded. So crowded, in fact, that these friends, and I, I can't help but imagine that to carry a man, four people carrying him on what they called a bed, which was basically his mat, that they're not going to go really fast. So as the press of the crowd is going in to hear Jesus, there's no room. So there they are, bringing this paralytic, and there's no room. It's just so crowded. So what do they do? They could not go near him in verse 4 because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. This is very radical faith. Now, in towns on that side, they tended to have flat roofs, and they were built adjacent to one another. So they may share a wall with the next place, and so they probably got a ladder of some sort or figured out a way to get on top of another roof. And they may have traversed the roofs until they get to that roof. And because of the way they're constructed, they just start tearing through the roof. Now, use a godly imagination with me. And imagine if Jesus came to this church this morning and people knew about it. No, not Dave Lang, Jesus is here this morning. Every seat is covered. People are in the aisles. The foyer is full. The sound people are going crazy trying to crank it up loud enough so that people in the overflow can hear what's going on and, and, and all this taking place. And in the middle of the preaching, 
a crumb comes down from the ceiling and hits you on the nose. What's that? Is that a bug or what? And then another one. And then you see some dust, but it gets in your eyes and you start back. A roof comes. Now, I can imagine the building committee is looking at one another. What are we going to do about this? The treasurer is thinking, how are we going to explain this to the insurance people? This is sort of crazy, isn't it? This is, this is not like normal church. Jesus is there. And they're desperate. And then using ropes or whatever it is they use, they start bringing this man down. And Jesus sees their faith. Jesus sees the radicalness of it. I mean, how many of you know, if you have an opportunity to meet Jesus, you take it. You don't wait, well, maybe next week. Now, let me ask you something. If you were seriously ill with a disease and there was one doctor who was just so good at it, you knew it was a sure thing. If he would operate on you, if he would take care of you, you would, you would change your world around to make sure you were there for that appointment. Well, did you know that Jesus is called the great physician? And there's only one doctor in the universe who's not practicing. He knows what he's doing. And when Jesus says somebody's going to be healed, they're going to be healed. But I want us to look at this story a little bit. I call it the great intervention. An intervention is an, an interference into the affairs of others. Many of the men that have come to the bridge house have had an intervention. And the intervention can happen in various ways. Sometimes it's family members that have come to this person and said, you know, things aren't going really well and you really need some help. In the state of Massachusetts, you can actually go to a court and section somebody, it's called a section 35, where you're basically compelling them to go into get treatment. They'll go to a detox, a transitional, and then they'll wind up at a place like the Bridge House, where for about six months to a year, they'll try to figure out what life's about. Now, the challenge with that kind of intervention is that until the person themselves is really willing to change, you're going to see things go crazy in all different kinds of directions. But when something is taking place in their heart and they begin to see, you know what, no matter how hard I've tried, no matter what I've done, no matter what programs I've been to, no matter where I've gone, I am still not able to do this thing. I'm not able to fix that. I need some help. Well, for whatever reason, these four friends of this man did this intervention. And they said, the only help that we know is gonna happen is through Jesus. And if we have to rip a roof open to get this guy to Jesus, that's exactly what we're gonna do. So, look at the care that these men have had. Who were these people? We're not told from the text. Maybe it was a family member is one of them. A father, a brother, a sister, a mother, a cousin, an uncle. Jimmy needs help. Or probably his name was Jimmy, or it was Jacob or something. <laughs> Jacob needs help. We're going to take him to Yeshua. And so he's there. Maybe it was an official from the town. Maybe it was a work colleague. Maybe it was just a neighbor, just somebody who was there. Maybe 
We're not really told a lot about his age. Maybe he was a student. Maybe it was another student or a teacher. We don't know. But what we do know is they didn't know what the answer was, but they know who had the answer. And so we're going to take him to Jesus. We're going to bring him to Jesus. They loved him enough not just to talk about it, not just to have testimonies about it. They actually did something. They got involved in the messiness of his life. Now, in the years, I've been 16 years at the Bridge House, many different positions. But one thing I can share you, I, I can try to romanticize it, but recovery is very messy. It's very sloppy. There, I wish there was some easy answers to it, and there's not. But I, one thing I do know is it's important that we bring people to Jesus. Because that's really going to be the answer, even in their temporal situations or problems. So there's a very real sense that what these people did was they loved the paralytic. We're not told how long he was paralyzed. Was he paralyzed from birth? Did he have a great fall? Ruptured his spine or something? We're not told. We do not know how he became paralyzed or why he was in this situation. We just know he was. You can use your imaginations, go in any direction with that if you want to. The carriers. They secured the conveyance. This was work. This was spiritual work, but it used a lot of very practical things. I'm going to brag on my wife. Deb would love, I'd love to be here, but she's actually a church pianist, so she's got, to, she's got to be at our church, Evangelical Church of Bolton. But, so Deb and I are going to, when we lived in North Attleboro, one of our favorite spots, um, which was sort of a it was a Chinese restaurant that had a Mandarin stir-fry for lunch. It was inexpensive, so that, that fit into me. And the food was good, that fit into all of us. I thought, this is really great stuff. Well, Deb is just really good at this. I, I preach, but she shares. So I preach, she shares. I preach, she shares. So our waitress is speaking with a very thick Asian accent. And it's like, Deb, will you help me with this? What is she saying? <laughs> it's like this. And so Deb actually begins to have a conversation. She finds out, now I may be mispronouncing this, so if there's any Asian people here, please help me out. Um, she said she was from, is it Fuchin? Yes. It's the area of China. Is that right? Is it? Did I say that correctly? Okay, so she's from the Fuchin region, Buddhist. And she's there, and one of the, and anyway, so what Deb does is Deb says to her, would you like to learn English better? And she says, yes. He says, why don't we have tea sometime and I'll do some lessons. So the lady comes. Now my wife homeschooled four of our kids. You know how many kids we have? We have four kids. <laughs> so she homeschooled them all. <laughs> okay. um, and so she knew how to teach. And so she's teaching her English. And so what does she do? Well, we use, how many of you are familiar with this? The McGuffey readers? Anyone? 
Yeah, okay, well, yeah. You have to be like over 50 to just even have heard of them. <laughs> it's like in the 19th century, it was the common reader that people would use in school. And they're full of Christian little sayings and commandments and teachings. And so she's sort of embedding in this. Well, she shares the gospel with her. She begins reading scripture to her. And I mean, I would love to say, oh, she just started to cry and accept the Lord. She didn't. But there was a friendship involved. Now, in our ministry, one of the churches that has been a very strong supporter for us for many, many, many years was the Chinese Gospel Church. I believe they're either in Framingham or Southborough. They're, it's really close on the border there. And so I contacted them and they gave us some Chinese gospel tracts and a Mandarin, because I think in China now, Mandarin is the standard written language. Is that right, I think? Anyway, so they gave us a Mandarin Bible and she was able to give it to her. Well, there was one problem. Deb was so good at what she did that this lady got a better job and she had to go down to New York City to do it. So with a tearful goodbye, their last tea together. And this lady said something to Deb that really struck my heart. She said, you're the only American that ever showed me any kind of love and care. Now, Deb has prayed for her, she shared with her, and she's leaving that in God's hands. She's just one of the four that may be bringing this lady to Jesus, that she'll say, huh, we have parents bring their children, their sons to the bridge house. We have state officials who get them there. Some, many, most of our men, almost all of our men have legal trouble, criminal justice background to one degree or another. Currently in the house, over one third of the men have done time in prison and jail at least two times. So we're dealing with that all the time. Look at the crowd. These disciples have wrapped attention fixed on Jesus Christ. They hold on to every word that the Messiah is saying. This was not like the regular synagogue meeting time. This was not the regular meeting time. Jesus is just showing up. Yeah, we're gonna give Jesus dinner. Everybody starts showing up. They're bringing this person with a disease and that person with this sickness and this person with that or this person with lots of questions about God and what's going on here and what's gonna happen and what are we gonna, what's life supposed to be about? People with tragedies, people who maybe be doing all right. They're just a little curious. We don't, we don't know what comprises the whole crowd. Look at this poor man, paralyzed, no hope. I do not know what it means to be paralyzed, to wake up every morning and think, well, let me just kick the feet over the bed and get up and then realize, oh, now I remember, I can't walk anymore. I can't move anymore. And then the disappointment just whacks him in the face again, fresh. He thinks that's what life is. Most of the men, I should say all of the men, that come to us at the bridge house aren't there because they use drugs. They're there for they're very broken and actually they use drugs to self-medicate. 
Help me with this emptiness. Help me with this sorrow. Help me with this depression. Help me with this, there's no purpose to life anymore. I've got to stuff it with something. And you know what? In every case, it does not work. Because that hole was only meant to be filled by God himself. The Bible says we are made in God's image, male and female, so he made us in his image. And until God comes into that part of our lives, everything else we're trying to stuff in there won't work. How many of you know that? Anybody here? God has to fill that hole. But how could a holy God who can tolerate zero sin in his presence, who's absolutely holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, how could a holy God come into the heart of a sinner? The Bible says that when God looked across in Isaiah 59, and, and the idea was, is there just one is there just one that in and of themselves will seek after me? Is there just one that will do my will? He said, there was not. None would do it. And it says in verse 11 in Isaiah 59, And the Lord saw that there was not one, not even one, that would be righteous. So you know what the Bible says he did? He stretched forth his own heart. We could not save ourselves, so God said, I will do the saving. And how did he do that? Isaiah 53. Jesus, the Messiah, came and died on a wretched cross to pay for my sins, the wrath that I deserved, the sin that I had in my heart. Jesus died on the cross. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten sons. In the early 80s, the church that we attended, my wife and I, was such a small church in the Quad City area, Davenport, Iowa, Moline, Illinois, that area was so small that the pastor was by vocation. He was a manager at a janitor company during the week, and on the weekend he was a pastor, but he had such a heart for street people, he opened up a coffee house in the red light section of Davenport, Iowa. How many of you know what the red light section is? Was that where all the stop signs are stuck? <laughs> no. Red light section is where you have the lowest of the low. You have what we call the street walkers, the prostitutes, the pimps, the pushers. And these were not the Hollywood prostitutes, okay? Like, I don't want to be disrespectful here, and I don't want to go too much into it, but these, these were people that were used up. These were the people that did not look good. And so, the Triple X theaters, all that stuff, you know, definitely not downtown West, right? You don't have that kind of stuff here. And yet, he went to a baker, the baker said, hey, Pastor Cavanaugh, sure, I'll give you a bag full of donuts every week. So on Friday and Saturdays, the coffee house was open. Teams would go out and witness and try and bring people in, either a musician, a comedian, a Christian of some sort who would entertain. 
People would come in, they could get free donuts, free coffee, and have some relaxation. While the workers are sort of mingling with the people, building relationships, sharing the gospel, and things like that. Pastor came to me and he said, Dave, I want you to do a Bible study on Monday nights for foundations so that those who come to Christ. Now, it's really interesting because when I would look at the 18 or 20 people that would come for discipleship on Monday nights, oh yeah, that was a prostitute there and this guy's a homeless there. You know, that was the congregation. You know, no, uh, we didn't take up an offering. <laughs> um, and then there were this couple, Paul and Lonnie Martin, Roman Catholic, and they looked just like you. They were upper middle class, professionals. He was an engineer, worked for the pump company in the Davenport Quad City area. And they come, we were there for about a year and a half before the Lord called us out to Utah to be a youth pastor. We were there a year and a half, and Paul and Lonnie were there every week. And so when they discovered we were going, Paul came to me and says, Dave, we know you don't get paid for doing this, but we would like to take you out for dinner next week before the, your last meeting. Fine, that's great. So he takes us to this buffet. We have a nice little time. And I, during the conversation, as we're chit-chatting over our dessert or whatever, I say to Paul, Paul, I'm not the greatest preacher or teacher. Can you tell me why for a year and a half you and your wife came to this Bible study at this coffee house in a rotten area of town, city? He said to me with a tear in his eye, when my daughter was 18 years old, she became a heroin addict. She's 30 years old now and she lives with her pimp. And then he said to me, that drove me to Jesus Christ. And I realized he was gonna stick around that ministry because he was hoping one day he might see his daughter come through those doors. So if we want to look at an intervention, he was hoping for an intervention in his daughter's life. So we looked at the man, we looked at the crowd, we looked at the helpers, now we're gonna look at Jesus. Isn't it interesting that when the man is being emptied into the room and he's being let down Jesus observing their, their faith. Now, if you were Jesus, you know what I would have said? Come on down, walk and be healed. And man, people go, that's not what he says. He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. You see, Jesus knew what this man's biggest problem was. It was not his paralytic condition because I don't know if anyone knows that here, but a hundred years from now, none of us will be here. We will all be, well, the expression we used to use, pushing up daisies. We'll all be dead. Our lives are, I know we make believe, we don't like to talk about it, but that's the truth. But the big problem is a relationship with the one who created us, God himself. The God who also sent his son to redeem us, 
to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us our hearts from the wicked and the evil that is in there, so that we might live godly, good lives before his face. Not perfect, I don't believe any of us are gonna get there. If you do, please stay around for me because I'll ruin it for you. <laughs> so, but just, we're sinners. And Jesus knew that's the heart problem that we all have. So he addresses that heart problem. While everybody else is looking at this person saying, his big problem is he's paralyzed. He doesn't know how to walk. Jesus is saying, his big problem is he's not reconciled to God. He doesn't know God. And I'm going to forgive him so he can know God. Isn't it a wondrous thing? And Paul the Apostle got this right. When we are in Christ, we are God's children. We've been adopted. In other words, dare I say it? Well, I shake you up if I say this. We are joint heirs with Jesus. Good, there was a couple of amens on that. Do you know that for the blood-bought, born-again Christian, I know that's, that's Christianese, so we'll wait for an interpreter to come to you know, tell you the rest of what that means. If you've been born again, if you've been saved, if you have a personal relationship with God, with Jesus Christ, you know what? You have instant access to the very throne room of heaven. That when you fall on your face before God, when you go onto your knees, or when you're driving around and you call out to the Lord, you are immediately brought into his attention, into his presence. Why? Because you've been covered with the blood of his only son. If he, who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not much more freely give us all things? He knows what you are going through. Isaiah 63, 9 says this, when you were afflicted, I was afflicted, God says. He is not an impersonal God who's very far off. He is a God, the Bible says, who's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. If he chooses not to heal the paralytic man, he can still rest assured his sins are forgiven, he has a relationship with God, and when he dies, He'll spend the rest of eternity with his father. Isn't that neat? He's God to everyone else, but to us, he's father. Abba, Dada, father, father God. You are my father. I am your son. Because of Jesus and the work that he did, Jesus got it right. But he doesn't end there. He has a discussion because he knows the thoughts of these religious people. What right does he have to say his sins are forgiven? Only God can forgive sins. Well, their theology is right, but the perspective is wrong. They're right. Only God can forgive sins. But who is Jesus? Jesus is God. And if Jesus says your sins are forgiven, guess what? Your sins are forgiven. If Dave says your sins are forgiven, well, there's a question about that. If Jesus says it, your sins are forgiven. But knowing your thoughts, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up your bed and walk. 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. He rose, picked up his bed, and went out before them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. What do you think is easier to say? Your cancer is, is healed. You're paralyzed, paralyzed, you paralytic, you can walk. Or to say your sins are forgiven. We all would say, well, it's a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven. But that's a man-based perspective. When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he knew that was the harder thing because he knew that that meant he would have to go and die on a cross. He was God. He could just go around healing people left and right all that he wanted. He could say, rise up, be healed, be made whole, and boom, 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 things happen because he's God. But for him to say your sins are forgiven, he knew that was going to come with a price. That he would have to suffer in Gethsemane and weep bloody tears over humanity. Can you think about how God feels about things? As he looks down in our world and he sees how we treat one another in our world and how we hurt one another and where, where all these things happen, how it breaks the heart of God. And yet he says, I'm staying my hand of wrath. Why? For the opportunity that when the gospel goes forth, when people hear about Jesus Christ and the gospel, when people hear that the Savior reigns, that Jesus is Lord, that the Holy Spirit will quicken this one and that one and the other. And his body gets built from every tribe. I love that scripture that you all shared this morning. It's, it's pertinent every day of the year. From every tribe and kindred and nation, God is building his church. And while we may have a lot of differences in cultures and we may have a lot of differences in level of income and societal status and all that, the one thing that rings true of the Christian is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether you're in Asia, Africa, Europe, America, South America, North, wherever we are, the islands, Jesus Christ is Lord. And when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, I remember when he opened my eyes, weeping at my bedside, March 1st, 1975. And I didn't know anything about theology. All I said is, God, if you're real, Jesus, if you're real, take over my life because I've made a mess of things. And he did. I didn't deserve it. I could not earn it. But the peace and joy, I couldn't sleep. <laughs> I was up till like three in the morning. And I remember, I was, we had a very, um, dysfunctional family, so I was living with a friend and the mother of the household, which I didn't really get along with real well, you know, but then after I got saved, we got along with just fine, found out she's a Christian. And I remember I said, Mrs. S, Mrs. S, I've become a Christian, I've become a Christian. And I, I didn't know what that meant, but I just know that there was love and joy and peace in my heart. And then I remember that dear friend who, had, who uh, along with many others who had been praying for me, the atheist Abe, I, so I left Friday, a very disillusioned atheist. I came back Monday morning with a Bible under my hand and a cross around my neck. <laughs> Talk about something a little strange going on here. When I went and I saw Denise, who 
we had a creative writing class my senior year in high school that I was in there. My writing was very creative, by the way. Um, when, when I went in there, she owned, if it wasn't for those old desks where the, the a top is attached to that, she was on the floor. I mean, she, she like fainted and she says, Dave, what happened to you? And I said, well, I become a Christian. And then I said to her, I'm really scared. And says, why are you scared? Well, this love destroyed this piece. This is really great, but I'm afraid I'm going to lose it. I mean, pray that, that I'll keep holding on to him. And, and, she, and she started to laugh at me. I'm really serious, Denise. I'm really concerned. Like, and she says, Dave, it is not your hold on him. It's his hold on you. Let's pray. Oh God, I don't know in the sound of my voice there might be someone here who's struggling. Maybe they've got afflictions. Maybe they're a Christian. Maybe they're not a Christian. I don't know, God. But you know the heart of every person here. And Lord Jesus, you who when you walk this planet, all we needed to do was come to you. We just needed to come. Whether it was breaking through a ceiling or just reaching out and touching the hem of your garment. We just needed to come. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you'll put it into the heart of that person. Maybe that person, maybe there's a person here, I don't know the people in the church, but maybe there's a person here who doesn't even know you yet. But I pray that you might put it in their heart that even this morning, they might reach out and say, Jesus, please take over my life. Jesus, I come to you, please forgive my sin. I'll give you my life. I'll live for you the rest of my life, Lord. Whatever you say, I will do. No matter what the world says, no matter what anyone else says, Lord, I'll do what you tell me to do, whatever that is. Lord, this has been a very challenging week, listening to missionaries and different ministries of all kinds, and the zeal that, Lord, I am, I am in awe of the zeal of many of the missionaries here, Lord. I, I really shouldn't be representing that because their commitment is just so great, Lord. I, I just really appreciate them. But Lord, we're all part of the body. And in whatever way we can get that gospel out, get that mission out, Father, please show us. If it's a kind word to that checkout person at the store, that, that peer, that student, that nobody likes that person, but that those Christian young people can reach out to, Father. I'm just like Dave, the atheist in school. Father, who, who, where, wherever our mission field is, God, help us to know it's not our job to save the people, but it's our job to bring the people to the Savior. So Lord, help us to do that. Show us how. For your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.